This evening's talk is about equanimity, and so its uh, subtitle is Finding Balance in a World of Change. If the world is uncertain, if the world is moving, flowing, things aren't fixed, then how do we find balance, how do we find stillness within all of that? So it seems to me that uh, when we're coming back to the breath, when we're using the very basic breathing meditation, we're developing equanimity. In really all of the practices we're doing here, we're cultivating this quality. So as I mentioned the other day, whatever's happening in our experience, whether it's full of joy or full of grief, whether we feel full of love or full of anger, whether there's intense bodily pleasure or very difficult pains. We keep coming back. So we come back to presence. We come back to the breath. come back to this moment. And in doing that, we're really building this trust and confidence that all moments can be met. And that our sense of peace and well-being in this world then points in a very different direction in the project to create a fixed and stable situation, to somehow freeze conditions in a way that's going to please us, gives way to the response to all moments, the pleasurable, the painful, the ones we want, the ones we don't want. A very different kind of way of being in the world is opened up. When we think about living with uncertainty, we may think about particular contemporary issues, and there's certainly all kinds of things in today's world that bring a great deal of uncertainty. You know, recent financial instability, what's happening with the public sector, what's happening with our jobs, environmental problems, ecological crisis, a whole range of problems which are very particular and contemporary. Could think of many more. How do we maintain a, a sense of healthy identity and tradition in the midst of a globalized world and all kinds of other things which could uh, occupy our minds for a long time? But also, there's an element of uncertainty which is really timeless. And this is why the Buddha's teachings still speak to us now not getting what we want being met with what we don't want, being subject on bodies, subject to aging, subject to sickness and subject to death, being associated with what's not loved, all that's dear to us, all that's loved to us, knowing, at least on some level, that we'll be faced with parting from that. So in other words, there's something structural, something existential, if you like, about the uncertainty uh, with which we live. But despite that deep uncertainty and the profoundly flowing, changing nature of the world, we seem to have an equally deep, almost, expectation of security. And I've got... uh, 
a little example from that in my my own life, which uh, happened to me just a few weeks ago. Um, I live in Nottingham, I don't know if you know that, but uh, I've got a little Nottingham bus pass, which I'm, I love, it's fantastic. It gets me on all the buses in Nottingham, gives me a sense of freedom around the city. And uh, I got on the bus one afternoon and sort of proudly put my bus pass there and it makes a nice little reassuring beeping noise that says, you know, you've paid, you're on, you're one of the, one of the chosen few or whatever. <laughs> Please come on the bus. And uh, anyway, so I did this, sort of expecting to get on the bus and... Uh, the uh, driver said to me, it's not working. I looked at him, I couldn't quite believe this. I said, what do you mean it's not working? It was working this morning. And, uh, you know, despite the fact of you know, practicing meditation and teaching these things, it's an expectation, it's working this morning. So how can it not be working this afternoon? You know, This is a, surely can't be a world where, you know, what's reliable in the morning has become unreliable by the afternoon. But there does seem to be this strong expectation of of security, of reliability. And even, obviously, this is a relatively trivial example, but we can just oh, a bit shocked when the world is not as reliable as we'd hoped. <coughs> and many of you will know uh, Stephen Batchelor, who teaches here regularly. And uh, as well as being a Dharma teacher, he's very uh, keenly interested in photography. And uh, I remember him saying once that he found a particular, it was a particular spot, and, you know, with the, the photographer's eye, he thought, great, this will be a fantastic picture. Um, but unfortunately, he didn't have his, his camera with him. So he said, I know, you know, I'll come back tomorrow and, uh, and take this. And yet, of course, when he came back tomorrow, the, the light wasn't quite the same. The, the conditions had subtly shifted. And uh, photographers are particularly, of course, have to be, and particularly sensitive to the subtle effects that changes in light have on what they're they're photographing. And then so you have to say, okay, it's gone. It's gone. But again, too, you know, there's almost that expectation, here it is and tomorrow I'll be able to capture it. So if life is... Uncertain. What does that imply about uh, how much we need to suffer, really? In other words, how intrinsically painful is impermanence? Where's the pain? Where's the dukkha in impermanence? (coughs) One clue that the pain of impermanence is more to do with our reaction to it than in the impermanence itself. To me, comes from the greatest impermanence of all, which is death. Um, And I I don't know if you've had this experience, I suspect many of us have had this experience, but uh, I remember once being uh, with the body of uh, somebody in my family who died and uh, just in those moments, actually, it was really, really peaceful. It was really peaceful. Mm. And just seeing that, that there's something even, I mean, death is impermanence with a capital I, yeah? This is a real one. But that if it can be met, if we just see oh, things arise, things pass, 
And this is not to deny the loss of the loved one. But to me, that kind of experience really points to uh, what creates the suffering and difficulties in, in life. And again, just reflecting on my own life, where the times when I've suffered the most is not necessarily in the times of greatest loss. I mean, for me, I would say the greatest suffering in my life has been when I've been lost in that which is trivial or superficial. You know, stuck in my own little selfish world of me and mine. Why did I do this? Why did I do that? Disconnected. And actually, you know, bereavement and loss and really contacting that can be you know, profoundly sad. And I, I'm not denying that it's, there's that aspect to it. But at the same time, very rich. And it's rich because there's a connection there. So again, that's pointing to, I think, um, a way of being with a changing world, way of being with an impermanent world, which is you know, through connection, allowing it to touch us and allowing it to pass, allowing it to flow. A very important word within Dharma practice is the word dukkha. And as many of you will know, this is often translated as uh, suffering or unsatisfactoriness. Um, <coughs> I mean, one of those are good translations. Some of the things in the, in the suttas are slightly puzzling when we see it like that. So one of the things that's said is that all conditioned things are dukkha. <laughs> So that means this cushion and this bell and this microphone and a really beautiful, wonderful meal and uh, you know, fantastic film and mud on the bottom of your shoe. <laughs> All of these completely different things. Uh, what do they have in common? They have in common that they're conditioned and they have in common, so we're said, that they're, we're told that they're dukkha. And if we think about it, that might be rather strange. I mean, this cushion is not suffering. I mean, it's not itself suffering. The bell is not itself suffering. Um, and the beautiful meal, well, what does it mean to say that's suffering? Because clearly, in many ways, that's a very pleasant experience. And one word that helps us get at this other sense of dukkha is unreliable. Yeah? All conditioned things are dukkha could be also translated as all conditioned things are unreliable. They're not a place to make a home. They're not a place to build an identity. Uh, they're not somewhere where there's any joy from clinging or grasping to them. Again, if I take the example of this bell, I mean, there's no... No suffering in that. If I'm just here and I use it while I'm at Gaia House, it's fine. But if I think, wow, this is so much nicer than the one I've got at home, and grasp it and hold on to it and cling it, but 
what's going on? Rob's had the same thought. And, uh, <laughs> you know, what's happened then? We're going to have a little fight about it or something's going to... Some conflict, yeah? Some conflict. So it becomes suffering when, when we start to cling. But on its own, it's just what it is. It's just what it is. A nice image I have for this is, is a broken bike. You think of a broken bicycle. I mean, how much suffering can a broken bicycle cause you? Yeah? I mean, nothing if you just leave it there. <laughs> but if you get on and start riding it down the road, you're going to fall off. And you're going to get hurt. So learning to live creatively within a world of change means not, not kind of getting on things, not projecting into things more than they can ever deliver, and looking for our peace in a, in a different direction. So when we think of this uh, unreliability and uncertainty of life, I think we can pretty soon work out that nobody's immune to this. And this is actually a doorway into connection with, with each other, into a sense of compassion and, and kindness. You know, all our stories, all of us in this room, I mean all of us in the world, all of our stories are, are different and those differences are important and you know to be respected but there's also this real common commonality of being faced with things we don't want being separated from things we do want and nobody's immune to this and what's more it's helpful to reflect that no condition no condition can make us immune So it's not that we need to somehow, you know, move around the conditions. That, you know, this will all go away if we move to a different place or get a different job or a different partner or a different country. Or that there's some way of kind of rearranging the pieces that can change this fundamentally. That fundamentally this is the kind of world we're in where things come and go. And moving the details around won't affect that. We live in a world of pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. And the forms they take are very different for different people. Obviously rich people have a different pleasures and pains to poor people. You know, famous people have different pleasures and pains to those of us who are more obscure. But they're there, those things. So living with this involves cultivating a, a wise view. And to me, equanimity is very closely linked with, with wise view. And it's really helpful to move towards a, a more steady view, a more consistent view, a more sustained view, um, rather than a kind of wildly fluctuating understanding of the nature of the world. You know, when you get, we get into that one minute, it's all fantastic and everything's brilliant, it's going to be like this forever, and then next minute it's all terrible and awful and it's going to be like that forever. And, and someone in uh, 
in one of the groups today was he used the the word roller coaster and you know our retreats and our lives can feel like that at times and just not believing all the stories so when we're at the top of the roller coaster you know not believing that's the true description of me or the world but then so too when we're at the bottom of the roller coaster that too is not a kind of final or absolute condition A lack of equanimity seems to me to be related to a lack of perspective. So equanimity is about really maintaining this, uh, this perspective. Mm. Again, I just uh, offer a little personal confession, which I always find helpful <laughs> in these things. But uh, I mean, sometimes in the, in the college where I work, uh, you know, we have all these kind of seemingly endless debates about what would be the best timetable and you know how long the lesson should be and things and everybody has their strong opinions and there's a four o'clock people and the ten past four people and the people who think it should be an hour and people who think two hours with a bit of a break in the middle and oh, endless meetings that go round and round and round to try and resolve this situation and uh, I you know uh, presume I may be wrong, but th- this kind of thing in different forms happens in workplaces and organisations throughout the country. Um, and you know, at times it can feel so important. It's so important this thing. And this, to me, is when we we begin to lose equanimity, when our perspective has shrunk, and uh, these kind of details of things, you know, become exaggerated. I'm slightly, what's the word? I want to be slightly careful about, about the next thing I say. So please don't, don't take this the wrong way. And if for you it's an unhelpful thing to say, then please put it aside. But for me, one thing that's helped uh, equanimity is to ask myself the, the, the question, what's the worst thing that could happen? Now, my, my nervousness there is, I don't know if in some people <laughs> that could trigger sort of endless... Uh, things of how, you know, really sort of awful things could be. But for me, sometimes I find that really helpful, um, a helpful reflection. You know, what's the really worst thing that could happen here? And would it be as bad as I'm imagining? Um, I think it was this morning, actually, uh, I think when Rob was speaking, and, and then in the sitting afterwards, um, I've had sort of quite a bad cough, and I had this, I don't know if you had this in meditation, this feeling that you're going to get a really bad coughing fit. So this kind of came up for me today. It was really, I thought, oh, this is, it's really, and then you're sort of, you're probably trying to suppress it a bit, which is not necessarily very helpful. And so then I kind of opened the eyes and that seemed to help a bit. But again, you know, where's the sort of, um, it was quite helpful in that to say, well, what's the worst thing that can happen, you know? And maybe I'll cough and cough and cough and it'll get so bad I'll have to, to leave. You know, okay, so what's going to happen then? It might be, you know, mildly embarrassing for me, really, as the teacher who had to kind of run out coughing. Uh, but, you know, I trust that it wouldn't be next day, right, you're banned from Guy House. That's it, That's it. you're finished, you know. Um, and uh, I don't know what you would have thought of it. I mean... Who knows, really? But it's not, it's not really such a big deal. But this is what... And I think, actually, interesting that that was just an example from retreat situations because retreat things can, can heighten that sense of how much things matter. 
So again, that's a good reflection. What's the, the worst thing that could happen then for me? Was that yeah, I could have to cough and walk out, and you know, so what? So what? Mm. I mean, we could probably think of worse things, but, but anyway, yeah, to me, that's helpful. I mean, even these really bad things that happen in our life, let's take, say, you know, getting divorced. It's a very, you know, clearly very very stressful, very difficult thing that can happen to people. Um, And yet it's not unusual to find people who see that as a real new rebirth. The thing that looks so difficult or constricted or... Uh, disastrous, you know, is a doorway into something new. <laughs> and again, this is you know one to tread carefully with, but even too with sickness. You know, you hear these stories, don't you, of people who who become very seriously sick, really seriously sick, you know, terminally ill, um, but who somehow have a sense that that there is, there has been for them um, some real learning in that. That there have been elements of that experience, as difficult it's been, that have been a kind of blessing. Again, it's something to tread carefully with, and certainly not to impose on, on others. You know, somehow that you ought to see it like that. But it's just a sense of possibility that really, to me, brings equanimity. You know, what feels like could be so bad and so awful and so full of fear... It could turn out to be something quite different. Uh, Christina, in her book about simplicity, tells a, a lovely story about this. A man living on the border of China cherished his stallion above all else in his life. One day his horse escaped and was captured by the nomads across the border. Everyone tried to console him, but his father only said, What makes you so sure this isn't a blessing? Some months later, his stallion returned home, bringing with him a mate. The man was overjoyed at his good fortune, but his father only said, What makes you so sure this isn't a disaster? Riding his new horse one day, he fell and broke his hip and was once more lost in despair. His father asked, What makes you so sure this isn't a blessing? Soon after, the nomads invaded the village and forced every able-bodied man into their army. The father and his lame son were spared this fate. Caught in the tangle of our preferences and judgments, friends and enemies, there is little ease to be found in the world. We will find simplicity in our lives only when we find it within our own minds. Just as the mind is the forerunner of confusion and complexity, it is also the forerunner of ease and well-being. So this sense, again, brings equanimity. You know, what's, what's a blessing and what's a curse? Maybe much more nuanced than we imagine. 
As I mentioned, losing a job may bring new and unexpected opportunities and getting divorced, new opportunities for growth. And so too, you know, the thing so many of us can sometimes work towards, like getting promoted, can turn out to bring new difficulties as colleagues are, you know, envious or sort of there's a feeling of loneliness with that increased responsibility. You know, wonderful things in life like uh, getting married, you know, also bring new challenges and new things to work on and, uh, yeah, and bring with them their own difficulties. So, again, it's, it's so woven, isn't it? You know, the pleasure and pain and the ups and downs are so inter- interlinked. quality of equanimity is also quality of warmth and I think this is really important to know because sometimes when we hear this you know how can we be still with the pleasure the pain the ups and downs etc that we're somehow advocating that we will become pieces of wood you know don't feel anything just be totally you know kind of numb and Nothing can touch me, you know. I'm sort of invulnerable and insensitive and, uh, yeah, cold, basically. But equanimity has a kind of warmth to it. And this is a real paradox of this. Yes, it's about stillness. Yes, it's about steadiness within change. But it's also about a heart that can be touched and can meet life. And one of the... Things John Peacock is, uh, you know, loves to say is that the, the opposite of attachment is not detachment but engagement, yeah? and that's a real sense of what equanimity brings. And I remember talking to Christina uh, some some years ago, and I think it was really about about uh, you know the beginning of Guy House really, and uh, I was then as I am now, just really. Well, um, I mean, both very grateful and, and also very kind of in awe, really, at what it is to set something like this up. I mean, for me now, you know, coming into practice and all of this stuff's here, and all the buildings here, and you know, how do you do this thing from scratch? And I find that really, really something, really, and I really admire people who have that ability to, to found new things and see those projects through. Um, and she was saying to me that, you know, for her, that the ability to really act well in the world, to be creative and to be engaged, was directly linked to that sense of inner stillness. Yeah. So those two things really go together. To be you know, creative and productive comes from a di- can come from a different place. I also think of um, you know the Dalai Lama, and apparently, once he was told a story of some of the the conditions that the nuns have to live in in uh, Tibet, um, and uh, you know particular monasteries where unfortunately there's there's still you know quite a gender divide, and, and the monks have a much easier time and a much more kind of privileged time than the nuns. Um, you know, and the Dalai Lama hearing this was. Um, was really moved to tears and and moved to action 
you know, and, and said that he would do whatever he could to address this situation. And we can see then how that's a fully, a fully human response. Yeah, that, that is moved by life, lets life touch us. I mean, I, you know, I don't know about you, but I mean, I'm not really interested in a so-called spiritual life that, that makes me kind of like dead and unemotional and cold, you know. But it's an equanimity that includes those, those qualities. Sometimes how uh, equanimity can help us to work with things at lots of different levels at the same time. And so many of the things we come across in life can be you know, met at what we might call a more practical level and what we might call uh, perhaps a more kind of ultimate level. And the one experience I had of this a few years ago was being burgled and how I responded to that. And uh, you know, I'd come home, I think, been away for the weekend and sort of the light was on, noticed that something didn't seem quite right and the you know, door was open and coming in and um, you know, finding fun in my house burglary. And um, as burglaries go, apparently, this one wasn't too bad. You know, a few things taken, but they hadn't completely uh, you know, trashed the whole place. But, you know, it's a very unsettling experience. And uh, as you know, if you, you've been through that. But then I was thinking about how to respond to that, really. And one of the things I did, um, I think it was a couple of days later, was quite deliberately to open both the front door and the back door of the house and have a real sense of letting all the air through and going um, that there was part of me that could really feel that there, there could be a tendency to close down in that, you know, after that experience, to really kind of shut everything down and be much more fearful and frightened so to let that experience be one of uh, constriction so I did this thing where I sort of let the uh, you know let the air through and uh, just sort of was helping to reconnect with the sense of being being safe at home um, but at the same time at the same time uh, I sorted out the lock on the window <laughs> and uh, you know went to extra efforts not to be burgled again and that's really part of this too, you know. Um, again, that sort of sense of equanimity. So doing things on a practical level, on a practical level, I'd really rather my house wasn't burgled. And equanimity doesn't mean throwing open the doors and, you know, it's all the same to me whether I'm burgled or not or anything like that. But it did mean just, just being a bit creative about seeing what that situation might have done in terms of constriction. You know, you know, another example of that, of uh, how equanimity is not getting in the way of a practical response, um, comes from uh, Ajahn Chah. And Ajahn Chah is a great teacher of letting go. And so many of his uh, Dharma talks were about letting go, and it's a central theme of his teaching. And he describes where he came across a meditator once, I think, sitting in the hut, and uh, the roof was leaking and rain was coming in. There was all rain coming everywhere. And he sort of sat there 
And Ajahn Chah said, what are you doing? You know, why don't you fix your roof? And he says, I'm letting go, I'm letting go. <laughs> and he said, you know, some people just don't get this at all. <laughs> yeah. So this sort of equanimity and this balance is not, you know, not a passivity, um, and not a kind of, yeah, not an invitation to, to pass it, to um, being totally impractical. Uh, I, I didn't always know this myself, actually. I mean, once years ago, I did uh, a long retreat in Wales, and the light bulb went, and I'm afraid I got used to sitting in the dark. Um, so this is this is a sort of kind of idiot uh, equanimity that uh, I was doing at the time. So it still includes this uh, practical response. Hmm. So equanimity, therefore, is not about uh, the end of motivation. It's really about a transformation of motivation. That's to Dharma practice in general can be seen as, as we begin to let go of being driven by the wanting, the greed, the craving, or the pushing away, the aversion, or the confusion. As we begin to get let go of those tendencies, uh, what's there is is a wise heart, a compassionate heart. There's a a different root, a different source of our speech and actions and thought. And to me this also points to what I see as a a kind of paradox, really, of equanimity, which is, does practice make things matter more or does practice make things matter less? There's a kind of weird uh, paradox there, I think. Because on the one hand, I think practice is about being less caught up in things, that things that seem to bother us, things that seem to be such a big deal, you know, we can just let go of, not get so entangled in, not so caught up by. But that is combined with an invitation to care very, very deeply that in a strange way things can also matter more. We can be more present, more paying more attention, that things are more worthy of our care and respect. I think of uh, the way in uh, Zen monasteries it's a very careful arranging of shoes outside of the meditation hall. You know, on the one hand you say, who cares how the shoes are? But you know, you say, okay, just really taking care. What's that expressing about uh, our attitude to each moment, our attitude to life? Hmm. And you see how then if somebody came along and ruffled them all up, that kind of be okay too, you know. So it's not—it's not a care that's neurotic. It's not a care that's clingy, and it's got to be like this, or it's some disaster. But it's an open, flexible caring uh, that is really very much um, uh, the sister of equanimity. Really, really joined together. I wanted to 
reflect really on the importance of having equanimity towards our own reactions or our own responses to things. Uh, otherwise, I think equanimity can become a somewhat high ideal and uh, you know something kind of almost impossible to live up to. Um, again, a few weeks ago, I was on a, a train in near Birmingham. Uh, I think it was rush hour time, quite, quite a busy train. And uh, it was my turn to get off. And I, I got up. And, you, I, you know, with these trains in big sort of city centres and things. Um, I wasn't entirely sure if the person in front of me was going to get off or not. Um, and I think he probably picked that up. Because perhaps knowing it or not, that I was sort of slightly edging towards him. You know, as we, as we do in big cities at times. Anyway, he sort of turned around to me and said, uh, I can't remember the exact words, but it was something like, yeah, hang on, mate, I'm getting off too. You know, it was like, don't push me. You know, you're sort of encroaching my space. Um, and it was interesting to notice my response to that because, again, somebody says that something to you and there's, there's a response. So there's a kind of heart beats a bit more quickly and that kind of, oh, you know, what's going to happen here and is this all right? And, or, you know, thoughts like, well, that was a bit unfair. I didn't know. <laughs> you know, all these kind of things arising. And for me, the equanimity there the equanimity there comes in meeting that response to, yeah? You see how equanimity could, <coughs> could be a kind of stick to beat myself with. Ah, oh, that's not very equanimous. He should say that and you should be totally, you know, no reaction, no response. But it seems to me much more uh, human and much more helpful to feel the response and then that is what we bring the equanimity to. See the difference? It's quite subtle, but quite, to me, very important. To me, very important. And those times when I've got caught by the other view, you then start pushing down the response. Oh, this shouldn't be happening. You know, I've been meditating all these years. I shouldn't be feeling like this. Or worse still, you know, I'm teaching meditation. I definitely shouldn't be feeling this. <laughs> you know, whatever it is. And pushing it down is what really, you know, gives it more, more life, really. know being equanimous too about you know the times when we're a bit short with someone or we're a bit snappy or yeah you know whatever it is again just just bringing a bit of the kind of lightness to that really okay oh so i lost that a little bit or you know that that was wasn't how i'd wanted it to be or slightly lost my balance then but then we just come back to the Come back to the breath, really, again. It's what I love about this practice, coming back to the breath, because that's really um, both a literal thing we can do in life and a very powerful metaphor that we can always come back, we can always start again. This moment, this breath. So reflecting on equanimity uh, in this way can lead us to you know to let go of particular ways of being. Yeah, if the world is inevitably one of pleasure, pain, loss, gain, praise and blame, 
we can begin to let go of the project of creating the perfect world with just what we want and nothing we don't want. And we, the direction of our life is different. It's more about sensitivity. You know, realizing the ultimate futility of our attempts to create a stable and controllable and ultimately fixed environment. And as we let go of that, that's not... Uh, it's actually not bad news. It's not a kind of depressed, oh dear, you know, everything changes. Just kind of get on with it and stoically grit your teeth. But what we begin to discover is that uh, our deepest peace never depended on things being stable in the first place. Yeah, just pause there a little bit. It's a really important point. They're two very different views. The kind of world-weary, depressed view that says everything changes. There's no kind of lasting uh, refuge in conditioned things. Therefore, put up with it. Life is grey. Turn the volume down and you know, be stuck with it. You know, This is a, a shadow view. It's one to watch out for. Or the other view, things are changing, things are flowing. You know, life is movement. And uh, our deepest peace never, never required it to be otherwise. There's no struggle. There's no struggle in that changing world. The struggle is born from trying to fix or grasp or build a stable identity out of it. And the more we let go of that struggle, uh, the more we can taste a, a profound freedom. So let's uh, sit together for a couple of minutes. May we find a stillness 
within the world of change. Being intimate with the the flow of experience. Finding a profound peace and freedom within that flow. (coughs) May all beings be safe and protected. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings live with ease and kindness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.